0: Uh, so if you want to turn, if you want to, you can turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter one. Um, we're going to cover the first two chapters of Exodus this morning, and um, I want to I want to give you a a lens through which to look at this book. Um, I don't know about you, I've always looked at so much of the Old Testament um, through the lens of this is the history of the jewish people and and by extension the history of of the the story of God um throughout you know from the beginning from the beginning of time on that this this is the story, and here are the things that happened. Anybody else see it that way it, it's okay if you do okay just me I, I thought it would probably be just me um i I've come to understand. That a better way to look at it is, and this shouldn't be that like while the Bible is kind of a big book, it does not have all the stories or even all the significant events that happened in the history of the Jewish people. something that I, I have you know as I've studied the scripture more, uh, spent some time in Israel, um, learned a little bit more about um, you know just that the ancient eastern culture which is very different from ours when we write a history book in the west we start at the beginning and we work chronologically to the end and we tell here are all the things you need to know about that happened that is not the eastern way of thinking and we have to constantly remember that like when we read the bible we are in some ways reading someone else's mail someone else's history book and we need to understand who it was written to and see it through the lens that they would have seen it because to understand it, we need to know how would the people it was written to understand it. The Bible is written for you, but it was not written to you, and so it's important for us to see that lens. And and so one of the things as we as we look through these uh, stories in the book of Exodus, we got to realize that the stories that are given to us in Exodus are given to us on purpose. We're going to see in chapter two, three stories that all kind of have the same theme. Those aren't just because that's what happened and that's the, those are the stories that they wanted to preserve so you would know about. It's because these three stories tell you something about this person. These, these stories, these, these things are significant, not just because of the event that they, that they, you know, tell you about, but because of what they represent and, and how they, um, how they tell God's story. And so as we, as we open our Bibles and, and look at, at Exodus, I hope that um, I hope maybe we'll, we'll see it a little bit um, fresh. Um, I am going to read both chapters. It's not super long. Uh, I think it's helpful for us to... Um, well, there is a thing about the public reading of Scripture, and we do a fair amount of that here, and um, I feel like God says it better than me anyway, so maybe we'll just read it and close in prayer. Uh, actually, no, let's, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you um, with full hearts. Um, God, you have blessed us in so many ways. You've blessed our church family. You've blessed our individual families (laughs) With, with babies that cry. God, that is so timely and so significant even for this morning's passage. The sound of a crying baby meant something very different to the people of Israel while they were in bondage in Egypt. God, I pray that you will help us this morning to to read these stories afresh, to see them through a new lens. Help us to understand what you have preserved for us in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um. Well, let's start at the beginning. Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to read quickly because we do need to get through this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, And daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came to bathe at the river while, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the child went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When, he came home, when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he named, called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those days, those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, this is a powerful passage, and I, I want us to understand that the book of Exodus... As we kind of take a break from Matthew, we're going to come back um, even before we finish the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to come back, and, and when we get to the part, of the portion of Passover, we're going to lay, we're going to lay the. You know, here I'm giving you the commercial for our next series, but we're going to lay the story of Passover over top of the story of the Passion Week of Christ, and we're going to see that there are just incredible parallels, and there are even parallels here in this passage to that the, the foreshadowing the coming of a deliverer. And I, I want us to understand. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I feel a little bit. Um, Unprepared for the task of preaching this, because the more I study it, the more I realize the book of Exodus is the foundation it is the beginning of the story arc of the redemptive history of all time. The book of Exodus is a snapshot in history of what would what was to come we and we'll see that repeatedly throughout throughout Exodus, what seems like just a story in their history is actually a foreshadowing of something that would come later. And and this is literally the foundation of of God's rescue of sinners from eternal damnation. This is a big deal. The the, the, the number, I, Pastor Michael looked it up, and I can't remember what the number was, but I mean, just a, a quick search will show you that that References to what God did in Exodus are all over scripture. I mean, from this point forward, basically every time God speaks, He reminds them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It, it is, it, it, this, this isn't just their history. This becomes their identity. This becomes, they, they go from being a family descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the people of God, the people whom God rescued with a mighty hand out of Egypt. This is is absolutely pivotal, and this is why we're calling this, Who Are We? God is giving them a new identity. And so I want us to realize, even in the coming weeks as as we study these passages, it's more than just history. These are stories on purpose. That are meant to convey something bigger than the events of the story, and so some things that um, and I'm just going to pull a few um, a few specific things that I want us to you know kind of see through that lens and uh, and have a, some application, and then um, and then we'll close because that's what we do at the end of sermons. Um, but um, in this first section. Um, verses chapter one verses eight through twenty two basically the, the main part of the chapter one we, we see we see oppression through slavery and the infanticide um great wickedness I mean absolutely evil things I mean as as we talk we talk sometimes about how um we talk sometimes about how when slavery is mentioned in the New Testament it is very different from what this country um, perpetuated, and, and what, what had, had been experienced here—it was, you know, slavery in the New Testament. A lot of times in Roman culture, was you owed somebody money and you worked it off. And if it was way more than you could ever pay off, that's where you live now, and that's that's kind of who you are and what you do. You know, sometimes um, apparently in the ancient world, even it was uh, it was it was not uncommon that you know maybe you had coins for taxes and maybe not. One of the first earliest ways that they taxed people was not so much with coins; it was. All right, you owe two months on public works, and you would go work on a road crew or whatever um, for a certain number of months or you know whatever and that would that would basically pay your taxes for the year um, I'm glad we don't do it that way anymore um, <clears throat> There were some works that were so so grand and big in scope. I mean you, you think about uh, th- th- this is kind of interesting. you think about you know sometimes there's, there's going to be a big road project, and they they'll put up a sign that says you know this this project paid for in part by viewers like you. No, it'll be taxpayers like you, you know, th- these, this 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 project funded by you know such and such an act passed by Congress, you know um, they would sometimes put, you know, things that were so big, it was like, wait a minute, you wasted taxpayer labor on that? They would say, don't worry, we only used slaves for this project. It was literally, I mean, they, they found signs that basically say that, you know, no, no, free, no free man was engaged in labor on this project. Very um, interesting, um, to say the least. But this is an example here of, this is actually an example of race-based slavery, this is slavery of an entire nation because of what family they were part of and who they were. And this was, this was great wickedness. You know, that kind of forced labor would be wickedness anyway. But um, it's particularly grievous when you consider at the end of Genesis what the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did for the known world at that time. God had ordained, you know. God had, you know, all of this is God ordained. But you know, there was a there was a famine going to be in the land, and God had given God had given um, Joseph the the vision to know that, and he um, fortunately gained the ear of the Pharaoh and enacted a plan of storehouses and of buying up um, people's people's property and things like that that allowed Egypt to go from being a certainly a growing nation, to the most powerful world power in the known world at that time. You know, through the wisdom and um, foreknowledge of God through his servant Joseph, saved so many lives, so many of the people, and made Egypt prosper greatly. But here we see, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Um, I wanna I wanna suggest that as I as I did my research, realize that you know there was a time in the ancient world where Egypt was split into Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. And it's confusing because Upper Egypt is south of Lower Egypt because it's upstream and downstream of the Nile. You've got Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt, and and they would have been in the Lower Egypt region, and there was a time when where Upper Egypt, or I don't know, one or the other, basically conquered the other, and then you had, you know, basically one unified Egypt. And it was I think it was it's very likely that that transition of power, where the other region came in and took over and was now in power, um, that region the leaders of that region did not know Joseph. They did not know what he and his family had done and so and so while uh, for about two hundred years, they lived in relative privilege, Egypt realized it was to their advantage a they kind of owed this family um, for for all that um you know that was all that jo- that Joseph asked of Pharaoh hey you know it's just you don't have to like make me uh make me a national hero but just l- let my family live unmolested in you know this area over here we'll we'll stay out of your way We'll leave you alone. Just leave us alone and, and let, us, let us be there. And they were happy to do it because it was, it was to the, you know, it's kind of that bottleneck as it comes from, uh, from the Middle East down into Africa. You had to basically come through the land of what, is, what was called Goshen, where the nation of Israel lived. You, you, and so any empire was always happy to have a buffer nation on their border. And so they're thinking, hey, this is great. This, this family can live here. Um, any enemy's got to get through them first. So, you know, it'll either buy us some time or, or they'll fight for us, you know, whatever. And we'll treat them good, so they do. That was kind of foreign policy um, at that time. And, um, and then that changed. Here's where I want you to see a parallel. That is exactly what happened. If you remember what we talked about at Christmas, that is exactly what happened in the New Testament. The Roman Empire ruled everything around the Mediterranean. Everything They, they called it, they called it uh, Mare Nostra, which means our sea. Everything the Mediterranean Sea touched was Rome. And everywhere Rome ruled, Rome built all kinds of public works to improve your life. And they put an army there to protect you and also keep you in line. But, you know, to protect you. And you paid for that army. And you paid for those works in taxes, but not the Jewish people. Oh, and also you got a Roman ruler. You didn't didn't get your own ruler. Rome put a governor in place. But the nation of Israel had a special arrangement with them. They were on the edge of the Roman Empire and past the nation of Israel on the other side of the Jordan was the Parthian Empire, the enemies of Rome. So it was advantageous for Rome to treat the Jewish people nice because they were the buffer between the empire and its enemies. And so... Nobody else got a king, but Israel got their own king. And everybody else paid taxes to pay for the army that occupied them, but not, not Israel. Israel got that for free. Not like they wanted it, but they got it for free. Until, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world to be taxed that signified a change in the in the foreign policy a change in in the 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 ruling occupying force over them changed the relationship from relative relative ease to oppression there's a reason these stories are both in scripture and they're right there on the page we totally miss it if we don't look at it through this lens and realize that this this is an echo of what was to come Something interesting that I want us to consider is that the position that the nation of Israel had of relative comfort, and by nation, I really just mean family. You know, there's, there's, it starts out, there's like 70 of them, and they are um, increasing rapidly. Um, There was a small number of people who even remembered the land of Canaan. And by the time we enter this story, those people are all gone. They've only heard stories of this land where God called their ancestor Abraham to go and, said that, and promised him and made a covenant with him that I will give you this land. They're, they're, these are stories at this point to this people. A whole land away that they've never seen. Meanwhile, here in Egypt, we kind of got it going on. We're protected by the most powerful nation in the world at this time. Um, they leave us alone. We kind of just do our own thing. Why would we want to move? And God, in his divine wisdom, sees fit to change their desires. And I want to suggest that God does this in our lives. The nation of Israel, this family experienced great hardship to shape and align their desires with what God wanted for them. God, God, God needs to, to bring our wants into alignment with what he wants for us, which, with what is best for us. They could not have imagined that to leave the safety and security of Egypt and go to this land that's actually currently occupied by other people and fight for it and take it over and now have to you know provide for their own defense and all of that. How is that better? How is that better than what we've got going here in Egypt? That was a pretty hard sell. But God understood that there was going to be, need to be a... They were going to need an identity. They were going to need to be um, not not just sons of Abraham, but the people of God. And in order to do that, God was going to have to show himself to them in a mighty way, a way that would come to define this people. And so God allowed what seemed like, does God even remember us? Does God even see us? Does he even hear us? Great wickedness was perpetuated against them, but it brought their desires in alignment with God's. John Calvin, in his commentary on the scriptures, um, kind of talks about this. He, He points out that the memory of the land of Canaan might well have completely faded from their hearts and minds had the Egyptians allowed them to continue in the privilege they experienced at first. God uses discomfort to move us from our complacency toward the plans He has for us, and He certainly did that in the um, in the in this example of the of the nation of Israel. There is more in these couple chapters than we have time to fully probe this morning. You know, there, there's the I mean, move on from the slavery bit, which is like a whole sermon by itself, and move on to the. Um, the edict from the pharaoh to kill the male children. I mean, this is this is great wickedness. This is the first example of this kind of this kind of infanticide that we see in scripture. Certainly, there were examples of um, of pagan child sacrifice, um, examples of you know conquest and you know killing even the women and children. All of that, all of that terrible, nothing on this scale. Nothing like this. This was a great, great evil perpetuated against God and his people. And it's important to recognize, again, hearkening back to that Christmas series where we talked about the Christmas dragon. And if you missed that, um, that was different. Um, <clears throat> but here's an example where the dragon that we see in Revelation knows that the seed of the woman, the promise of the deliverer that will rescue, all of man from his clutches, is going to come from the seed of this family. Don't think that this is all Pharaoh's idea by himself. There is a great serpent behind this who is trying to snuff out that seed of the woman that would bring about the rescuer for all mankind. So important to see that. There's just there's, you know, incredible lessons in here about, about fearing God more than fearing man. The Hebrew midwives, well, you know, first, first Pharaoh tried to do this subversively. Why, why did he call two specific midwives in? Well, he doesn't want a full-scale rebellion on his hand. And so he's thinking, if I can quietly do this and make it, you know, maybe these midwives will help me out We'll make it look like an accident and we'll pay him. But they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, although they did still lie to him. But that was, that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> but God blesses them. An assault on human life is an assault on the image of God. All forms of ending human life at any stage is an assault on the, on the person and work in the image of God. And we see that all throughout scripture. From the the, the very first, from Cain killing his brother Abel, the great sin. Certainly, he ended his brother's life, but the great sin was that was an assault on the image of God. It's a way bigger deal than we like to think, than our culture would want us to think. And, and I, I think it is very obvious, the parallel between this great wickedness and what we see being perpetuated against unborn children across the world, and particularly in our country today it is an assault on the image of god to end human life human life because it bears the image of god deserves or it deserves dignity respect and protection at every stage whether it's somebody that's a vegetable in a hospital bed and you know should we just should we just end that you know that uh, that's not really great quality of life no that is the image of god and he is the one who decides. And it it's so important that we acknowledge that and leave that in his hands. So much more we could say about that. But as we, as we move on, to the story of Moses' birth and his, and his preservation, and actually the Hebrew midwives kind of works into this. This is important to, to recognize. that One of the things that the nation of Israel brought uh, with it from Egypt, one of the things that it, that it learned, um, Egypt prized very highly their shrewdness. They were extremely ethnically proud. I mean, if you were like if you were Egyptian you, at, at this time, you would absolutely have had ingrained in you that because you are Egyptian, you are better than everyone else. They, they, they had great national pride. I mean, good grief. Look at the stuff that, that they've have unearthed and are continuing to unearth about their burial practices and all of this. They they thought very highly of themselves and their civilization. And this is where 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 Pharaoh says, "Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply." And if war breaks out, they side with our enemies. This idea that we are going to outfox them, we're going to be smarter than them, we're going to trick them, we're going to use cunning and shrewdness and beat them. You know, kind of weed them out or or weaken them in some way. And and what do we see? I want you to realize that, that this is this is important. This is something we wouldn't pay any attention to. Pharaoh says, "Let us let us." Um, deal shrewdly with them. And what happens? The fox gets outfoxed. The Hebrew midwives completely, completely, uh, you know, they say they're going to go along with it and then totally, totally pull one over on, uh, on Pharaoh and then play it off like, oh, I don't mean, know, what are we going to do? They outfoxed him. Moses' mom, Yahved, she does the same thing she, out, she outfoxed the fox. She, she, in her shrewdness, in her, um, I don't know if cunning is the word, but this wisdom given to her from God orchestrates this whole thing. Okay, let go of this whole Prince of Egypt. Okay, it was a great movie. And uh, some, for some of us, it was the first time we cried in an animated film. But that's because you hadn't watched Toy Story 3 yet. But <clears throat> this idea that Moses was Pharaoh's brother growing up, just like let that one go. Okay. Um, just look at the, at the house of Saud these days. You know All the Saudi Arabian, the, um, you know, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Yemen, Oman, all of the, all the oil, the Gulf states, all of those are princes of the same family. The princes. There's no shortage of princes and princesses. A princess finds him. How do I know this? Well, if you were um, a princess who was giving birth to um, the line of succession, and you were as proud of being Egyptian as Egyptians were, the idea of raising a Hebrew child in that line of succession, no, that's not a thing that's gonna happen. But she was a princess, and with that came the rights and responsibilities and privileges of being uh, a member of the royal house, even if a lower ranking one, but still. Also, let go of the idea that, um, that, that Yahaved, you know, they, they had this baby. Raise it for three months, okay, that part's true. And at some point realize, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna technically obey Pharaoh, but I'm also gonna obey God. And I'm gonna I'm gonna make it so that the baby can float down the river and just hope God will save him. Okay? That sounds super spiritual, but in reality, God gives her the wisdom to craft a plan in which she makes a floatable basket. But she didn't float it down the river. She puts it in on the bank of the river, so it looks like it floated down the river and just happened to land right where Pharaoh's daughter would be um, coming to bathe. She knew. She knew that she's coming there. These little bathing spots would be in front of a in front of a temple where the you know there's a little eddy in the river or something like that, a little cove. There would be times of the year when ritual, that kind of ritual bathing would happen. She knew that this kind of thing was going to be happening. And, and Moses' sister didn't just happen to kind of follow the, follow the basket down the river and hide and, oh, maybe I'll speak up now. This is all part of the plan where they outfoxed the fox. That's, that's the, kind of the point of this story. They, the, the nation of Israel, through the wisdom and cunning given them by God, were able to stay in many ways one step ahead of the Egyptians, there are stories in in, in ancient in the ancient world of a, of a, a hero who is born into um, who is whose birth is unknown, but is raised by uh, basically one side of the tracts and then later finds out his true identity and then steps into his role. And it's always that a prince is born, raised by commoners, and then eventually it comes to the realization that he is in fact a prince and steps into his rightly role as leader. The way God works is very different from how the world works. This is the same story in reverse. It is a slave who is born but raised by royalty. And, and in, in stepping into his true identity, he doesn't go back to being a slave, he leads that nation. He becomes that nation's leader, even though he was born a slave, raised by royalty, and then God raises him up to be the leader. These are, these are incredible, incredible um, vignettes that are communicating something about God and something about his people. Exodus is part of the Torah. You know, Genesis is, a, is the, the origin story of mankind and of the, their family. Exodus is their identity. Deuteronomy is their constitution. And Leviticus is their, um, basically, uh, all their court precedents. I mean, it's given to them by God, so they did not actually have to litigate it all first, but it's like, okay, and here's how you would apply the law in all these hypothetical situations. Okay, so understand that, like, and then and then numbers numbers kind of has a lot of their a lot of their their family history, genealogy, and some other things like that. But understand that, like, the Torah this would have been studied by all Jewish people growing up, and they would this this is what helps them understand who we are, who they are as a people. The book of Exodus is the identity piece of that. In this last section of chapter two, verses eleven to twenty-two, we we get we get three stories of Moses defending the weak and oppressed. There's a reason that those three stories are told next to each other. It's not because uh, nothing happened till he was like 40, then he killed a guy, and then the next day he intervened, and then he went and and rescued some some girls at the well. No, these three stories are, are next to each other on purpose because they all show you something. This person who has been chosen to deliver the nation of Israel from the hand of Egypt um, by the mighty hand of God. This person who has been chosen, he doesn't know it yet. But there is a calling on his life. He has a sensitivity to the weak and oppressed. He is God's chosen deliverer and he doesn't know it yet. And, and there's something that he has to learn here. Uh, one of my commentaries uh, said this. These two incidents, specifically the um, the one where Moses kills the Egyptian and then where the uh, the Hebrews are fighting with one another, these two incidents prove that neither were the Israelites ready to go out of Egypt, nor Moses prepared to be their leader. It was by the staff and not the sword, by the meekness and not the wrath of Moses, that God was to accomplish that great work of deliverance. Moses knew that he was raised, he was raised by by uh, literally his mom. Okay, here's another way they outfox the fox. Moses' mom worked it out, so she literally got paid just to be, her, just to like raise her own kid. Well played. Okay. He knew who his people were, and and he, he was raised in the house in the royal house. Um, <clears throat> but it's clear. When he goes out and observes the oppression of his people, he knows that they are his people. And he sees them being oppressed. And as in the ancient world, your clan comes above all else. We can be like, wow, God really um, blessed lying and murder and all kinds of stuff um, in this. And And that's not the point of the story. He defended his people as would have been proper in that time. Um, it, it's, it's very, it's very likely, um, given the the words that are used in this in this passage, that the Egyptian who is um, who was beating the Hebrew was actually killing him, beating him to death. And Moses basically avenged that. Look, I'm not saying that's what we should all go do. This is not the application section. But um, <clears throat> but Moses was not ready to lead them yet. Moses had some character development that needed to happen first, and the character development did not involve shoveling snow or um, whatever we do down here. Um, Moses didn't know how to deliver these people, but he clearly wanted to. And he thought, "Maybe, maybe I'll do this by force, one person at a time. But God was going to deliver these people, and when God delivers anyone, he does it in a way that there can be no question who did the delivering. Who worked this salvation? It could only have been God. God only works in a way that only he gets glory. That is so important. You know, as we, you know, you think of the the five solas of uh, Martin Luther and the Reformation. You know, soli deo gloria is the last one. All and only for the glory of God. God does all things for his glory. This is important. So as we think through, why did God allow this? Why did God allow that? Why did God bless this? Why did God um, allow... Certainly God had the power to stop any and all of these things happening. Why did he allow such evil to be perpetuated against his chosen people? Far be it from me to sit in the position to judge Almighty God as to whether his choices are right or moral my moral compass is so messed up i'm lucky to find my way out of this room compared to god this i know god does everything for his glory and his timing is always best and i want to i want to end with this this passage here this, this couple of verses at the end god Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. That doesn't mean God had forgotten it and now he remembered it. God remembered it the whole time. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That is so important to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. God is doing something. God is at work in their lives, and at this time, it has been 400 years since they left the land of Canaan. And for about half of that, they've been in abject slavery. And, and interestingly enough, you go back to Genesis chapter 15, and you find out that this was actually part of the promise. Verses 13 and 14 say, "No," the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants or slaves there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That is like it's funny, that's exactly what happens. But it's important to acknowledge that God is at work. God is at work whether they can see it or not. If you go to my favorite verse in the whole Bible, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. You may be familiar with that. Actually, I don't need to turn to it. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Habakkuk cries out to God, God, why do the wicked prosper? Why do, your righteous, why do the righteous suffer? Why do your people experience such hardship? And God answers back, Look around, at the nations and be astounded for I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe even if told. And that was true here too. God was at work. God was putting the pieces into place, putting the pieces in motion that would change the course of this family and make them into a nation. God saw and God knew. It is so important in our lives, by way of application as I close To acknowledge the sovereignty of God, to lean heavily on the wisdom of God, even when we experience hardship, and let me just suggest, no one in this room, I think I could venture so far as to say will ever experience in your lifetime the type of hardship that the nation of Israel experienced in this season. But the hardship that we do go through is our own, and so whether it's not about comparing it to someone else's, it can still be hard. Some of us may have to go through the difficult season of losing a child or a spouse, dealing with a devastating diagnosis. The list goes on and on. It is so important that in all seasons we remember God is sovereign. He is on the throne. He sees, he hears our groaning, and he knows. It is important that we not ask God, why me? But how can you get glory? How can I give you glory in this circumstance? How can I reflect your character and be your people in this situation. There are so many parallels, and i am just—I'm going to quickly give you another one. Some of the ancient, uh, kind of oh, ancient, but like you know, really old historic church fathers uh, describe Egypt as this season as the womb of Egypt. That's kind of an interesting way to put it—the womb of Egypt. But think of this. And you know, if you think back to what we talked about when we had our, our baptism uh, for Savannah, by the way, pray for them. They're on their way back from Mexico. They did make it back as far as Texas, but their flights were way delayed, so they, they will be back with us soon. Um, but we talked about the whole coming through water and how when God works a great salvation, He delivers us by bringing us through water in some way. And, and we even talked about like the actual like the birth of a child. In, in a way, there, there is water, and you're brought through the water and you're delivered. It's interesting that we use that term. The nation of Israel: the, the seed of Abraham, the, the seed of this family, goes into the womb of Egypt and grows into a people, grows into a nation, and God brings them out. Through the water and delivers them. It's very interesting, isn't it? And they and, and this nation is born. It's just an incredible parallel. These incredible things are right on the right on the page, and we so often fail to see them. But I want us to see that this this as we as we go through this, God is sovereign in every single step. No matter how long it's been since you heard from Him last. No matter how hard your life is, remember. This life is a blip on the timeline of eternity. And if you think that God's justice either wins or fails on this side of eternity, you have another thing coming. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He sees and he knows. And on the scales of eternity, justice will be served. And his righteous will be rewarded. And the wicked will be judged. We ought to find great comfort in that and find the, the strength to be faithful. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the people of Israel. That we can look at their history and see even just the fact that they, the fact that they are even still a people. Is just an incredible evidence of your hand on them. God, thank you that we can study how you brought them out with a mighty hand from Egypt, out of slavery, into the life that you had for them. God, help us to see that in our own lives, how without your salvation and deliverance, we are slaves to sin. And you want to set us free. Thank you for Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen.